Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday. And I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And this week, Neil and I are discussing another beloved Konami horror series, that being the vampiric and gothic horror of the Castlevania franchise. And joining us for today's horrifying chat is none other than the Castlevania superfan and uh, BloodyDisgusting.com's own Mike Wilson. Mike, welcome to the show. Great to be on here. Thank you. A little, a little, <laughs> little over the bit with the uh, uh, Castlevania superfan, but I'll, I'll, t- I'll take it. I mean, it's kind of, I am a big fan of the series, so it's kind of... I mean, I mean, that's my sort of take on you. You know, it's like any, any time Castlevania is mentioned, have we done this on Castlevania? Have we done that on Castlevania? It's like, it's like no, no, man. And it's like, yes. oh, I'm doing it. It's like, this is the thing, though. Like, I've played Castlevania various iterations throughout the years, but it's one of those series that I've never been super invested in the lore. So anybody that suggests that we ever talk about it, I always just kind of view it as like, oh, well, they're bringing it up and they want to talk about it, so they must be a super fan but it, i mean when you think about it over the course of uh castlevania's history right i mean it is a series that's lasted about 35 years at this point and it's had about 40 iterations of it right so whenever anybody is kind of talking about it outside of terms of like oh i played the original one because i grew up with it or i played the most recent edition it's like well nowadays you kind of have to go out and search for those titles um, so it is this yeah. type of thing where it's like people now and they mention Castlevania 2 in any terms more specific than like the first one or the most recent one. It's like, well, they must be invested in it more than the, for lack of a better term, average Joe gamer type uh, person. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's kind of there's a reason why, you know, several of the games uh, have been on you know, greatest game ever list or best games ever list. It's not the greatest game, but is they're certainly up there depending on who depending on who you talk to. Uh, so it's just and it really is something that's you know, 35 years later, we're still kind of it's it's a mainstay for not just horror fans, but just video game fans as well. It's just because again, just the longevity and uh, the fact that people have grown up with these games. And they're just so memorable, whether it's the music or the the boss encounters or just the, you know, just the nights where you're just you stayed up late with your friend and you just played through Symphony of the Night and you forgot to do a save and you end up dying and you're like, ah, and you go back at it again because it's so much fun. So and that sounds like me the last week, kind of just like catching up on old Castlevania games, forgetting that it was like, oh, got to remember to use the uh, the virtual <laughs> console settings, right? When you can kind of save wherever, it's like going on a tear for thirty or forty minutes and being so engrossed in this world, whether it be the eight bit, sixteen bit versions, uh, the various Castlevanias that I played over the course of the week, just to kind of refresh my memory. It always got to the point where it's like I go on a tear and I get so engrossed, <laughs> and, I, and then I forget to save, and then I die, and it's like. It's not the type of death where immediately you're like, oh, shit. Now, like, I'm going to take a break and come back to it. It's kind of the experience where I want to dive right back into it. And it is very symbolic of just sort of the true classic platformers, right? It's this sort of same experience to a certain degree, like the same 90 seconds of fun over and over and over And you keep coming back to that same core gameplay loop because it's so addicting. And I mean, of course, us all being massive horror fans, right? It's a bonus that it's a platformer, a strong platformer at that in a lot of ways. But it also has the horror aesthetic that I think 
over the years, maybe, people that have become fans of horror, they come back to Castlevania, they're like, well, that maybe feels a little diluted. But I mean, when you think about when Cast the original was released and then over the course of that 35 years, mm. it really has been this consistent horror aesthetic that I think, especially like playing the anniversary collection and playing through a lot of the older ones that I'd never played before. I mean, you get to see that just be built upon and refined over the years in a way that feels remarkable, even to somebody like me that has enjoyed Castlevania throughout the years, but maybe it hasn't been one that has been ingrained in my sort of like gaming history, as you, if you will. No, it is, you, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the fact that, again, it's when people talk about the Castlevania series, they're talking about the yeah. original trilogy or uh, even the Game Boy ones. It's always the sort of the whole the NES hard quote unquote mm. difficulty, but it's it's not it's it's one of those sort of games that it's not one of the truly hardest uh, games on the on the console. I mean, you know, right. you think about Ninja Gaiden and everything like that, but it's just <laughs> or, sort of I mean, even Mega Man. Oh yes, it's, exactly, it's, exactly. <laughs> but it's but there is when uh, when they when they first. Uh, you know, created the games. They, they, it was designed deliberately to be played a certain way, where you had to be deliberate. You had to learn. It's not so much memorizing. I mean, granted, you did have to memorize certain things because you didn't want to actually accidentally pick up, you know, an axe when you already had the cross or something like that, and then you screwed up your sub weapons, or you know, you're crossing a bridge and you got to dodge all the Medusa heads, and you have to time your your whip swing just right it's it's kind of it's one of those games where again there's a learning curve to it but like you said it's one that you if you die it's kind of oh i want to just jump right back in there and you know i'll do better next time sort of thing yeah i think you've because you have the tools to sort of experiment if you will it makes it that much more interesting to go back into i think any game that employs that sort of attitude has always benefited from it and i think this is the important thing about Castlevania, even in the earliest iterations, is that you have that thing that no game really had, you know, at that point where you had the ability to experiment. Mm. And I mean, which is to an outsider looking at it, you know, and given the term Metroidvania, you know, where it is one half of this whole formula now these days in so many games, which I also think contributes to this sort of dilution of uh, how threatening that game series can be it's you know it, it's so flexible it, it's crazy how well it does and I, that's exactly the appeal of Metroidvania type games it, is that you are opening up things and t- and using new abilities and mix and matching stuff to try and use it and back then it was like, it's like no you have this power this power and this power yeah, you get you have it or you don't have it depending on where you are in a level and if you've got hit or not. And here it was like, no, no, it's like you, you've got this power and you've got this power now. You can sort of push forward and decide which way is going to take you forward. And yes, there were games that did that to some degree, but I think Castlevania just had this kind of flexibility that was beyond that. And I, I think that's why it resonated with people so much, you know, especially as you got to the, yeah, it's, it's bad to think of Sophia of the Night as this 
much later game. I think it's like halfway through the, the franchise at that point right. because there were so many games yeah. coming out in that early stage. But you know, by that point, it was just like they just sharpened that formula to a fine point, mm. and it was just majestic because not only did they have all that, they had the story down on pat, and you know, it's ironically it's another series that has like nearly you know thirty odd entries. But uh, you know, set in a castle with royalty, you know, and it's not Mario. You know? yeah. And <laughs> yeah, here it is, you know, still innovating, doing different things, while still keeping within that same basic formula mm. and making it appealing. Uh, and obviously, Mario is easier to sort of go out there and say, "Oh, you know, it's financially successful and you know, it's family friendly." So obviously, that series is going to be this big thing but I think Castlevania does a lot of the same things without the family friendly stuff and doesn't get the credit for it you know and I think again that in recent years is just due to the fact that they slowed down to the point where you know a series that has had several games every few years has had like three games in the space of what a decade mm. uh, at this point and yes and of varying quality at that <laughs> point and even then they they were you know trying to be evolutions of that formula so it, yeah it's when we've talked about the last few weeks about how you know the impact Konami have had in this industry with Metal Gear Solid and with Silent Hill and all and how smart and mature and all the things they did but I think Castlevania was the forebearer in, in that regards in terms of gameplay rather than narrative in that it offered so much that, that you could not find anywhere else you know and, and really drove the industry forward in a way that isn't appreciated enough i think well and it's it uh to you know further further your point it's again 35 years later you can pick up the games and they, the gameplay still holds up. I mean, granted, again, mm. like I said, there is a learning curve to it, but it's a deliberate, it was deliberately constructed as such that you, you know, from the very beginning, you learned that, yeah, Simon Belmont and everyone else is really stiff and <laughs> you, have a, you have a delay when it came <laughs> to your attack and mm. you had to basically learn and keep that in mind. Timing, again, or just yeah. timing and memorization. Uh, whether it's a level layout or whether it's facing bosses, you know that's something that uh, again is it's kind of, it's really impressive the fact that it's lasted this long. And of course, again, yeah. even when even when they moved to uh, you know they moved off to Metroidvania style, you still have even today. I mean, that's 24 years. This month, actually, that uh, mm. Symphony came out, and it's still, again, Jeez. yeah, it still still holds up. Uh, and again, how many games from even then, uh, the early, I guess, early mid PlayStation, uh, yeah. you know, how many games still hold up in terms of gameplay or everything? We we talked about this a few times in recent weeks because um, we were talking about Quake and you know how it's. Uh, you know, the, the core of that game just works to this day because it the DNA of it is in so many modern games and I think so many modern games 
especially in the indie space, have taken what the Symphony of the Night did uh, and sort of take it to the next level. Works so well. It's yeah. This last week, um, playing Diablo two again for the first time in since probably it came out for me, <laughs> and there's an example of a game that it maybe doesn't age so well. You know, it's like if you played it back then it's perfect you know it's, it's the, a brilliant remaster but in the same way that Quake's remaster was but it's so much harder it's so much uh, less forgiving and less comforting you know it, it, there's something about it that doesn't work with the way games have evolved and Castlevania you know especially Sophia of the Night hits some of those points um, but at the same time it as we were saying before it it has something about it where you're like I will try again I will have another go because it gives you that flexibility as I said where you get to do different things with powers you have and the abilities you gain Mm. and that's why Metroidvania games continue to be so popular that that formula in itself has continued to be popular whereas say Diablo's formula has been evolved to such a level now where you know to, from Diablo 2 to 3 is stark contrast you know in terms of how the games are, whereas you go from Quake 1 to Quake 3 or even to Quake Wars and Quake Champions the fundamentals of that game are still the same to this day mm. and there, so that's why Castlevania sort of lies in that same sort of realm if you will because even when it went 3D it still had that Castlevania feel to it you know, in, in a different way but it was still there and I think that's where any game series that lasts worth a damn will always understand that about its series you know it will not try to cater to the wrong audience and deviate too far from what made it right we've discussed this again many times with Resident Evil you know where it had that deviation period where it started becoming something that it wasn't Mm. and it only really redeemed itself when it started to understand its own heritage and push forward with that in mind yeah and i think that i mean for somebody especially like me that hadn't played a lot of the original early castlevania games right i mean i play i bought the anniversary collection in prep for this just so i could play the first four games or so uh because i'd never played them right i I'm at the age where, like, I, the first one I played, I think, was Symphony of the Night, and then I played the GBA stuff, and then I played some of the DS stuff. And then getting to kind of, like, take this trip down memory lane, it's one of those sort of uh, experiences that I've set myself up for in the past where it's like I'm going to take a few steps back and revisit the origins of a franchise that I'm coming to at the later end of it, right? Kind of the more modernized yeah. version of it. And I'm always somewhat skeptical. It's this type of thing where it's like, well, if I heard such praise because the person that was telling it to me had these uh, XL kind of like rose tinted glasses about it and they're like oh this is such a staple in my childhood and I mean it was the best game ever and then you end up playing it and you're like well this is kind of aged like milkwood over the years but <laughs> I'm happy to report that Castlevania was not that case right I think the early like the first no. three are definitely uh, a little rougher than maybe once I got to Super Castlevania 4 but at the same time it's kind of like what Uh, Mike has been saying this idea that the gameplay has been from the beginning like the fundamentals are there in a way that it is this experience that 
sure, you have to learn how the character moves, right? There's a little bit of a delay. It's not as sort of like instantaneous as people might be familiar with. But I think a lot of the times, especially like people from my generation, when we look at 80s games, we tend to think of them as being these super hardcore games that only the hardest of the hardcore could really not only master, (laughs) but just enjoy casually, right? And this Mm. was very refreshing for me in that, yeah, there's definitely some stiffness to the movements and whatnot here and there, but it never really impacted me to the degree that I wanted to stop playing outright, Um, which I think is key to describing a game, and especially one as old as the Castlevania franchise is and all those entries, as being a classic, because you can come back to it and it's like, yeah, the the further uh, to the current day that you get with this franchise, of course, they get better and better in terms of being refined from yeah, a gameplay absolutely. perspective. But at the end of the day, like the DNA is there from the outset. And that is a rarity in a lot of franchises and series that I don't think is true of some franchises now that people refer to as being like classics or fan favorites and whatnot. It's like, there are so many franchises out there without kind of casting too many uh, direct stones at any one particular one. <laughs> but there's definitely franchises and series out there where it's like, oh, well, it's been around for 20 years. Let's play the first one. And it's like, well, I'm burning out on that in about 15 minutes. And it's like, I'm just going to play the most recent entry. Like, that's just been my experience uh, with a lot. And it was very, very pleasant uh, experience to find that that wasn't the, the case with the majority yeah. of uh, the early Castlevanias. Yeah, I think early, yeah, the tie in tying back to with every Konami big franchise is that the core of their games from the nineties, eighties, nineties, or period um, means that they exist in the later games to some degree, whilst sort of riffing on them in some way, and each. As their big three franchise, big four if you want, okay, um, have something about them that's different, I, I think. But um, it's remarkable to sort of look at how they went about it and how they all sort of went about it in a very different way. I mean, you think about Konami, Metal Gear Solid series and how Kojima, you know, he was, the ironic thing there at the three series, he is consistently there throughout that series yet it is the series that changes the most from entry to entry but successfully you know it's like he understands it to the point where he's like no I want to do something different I want I want to tell a different story with that Silent Hill for instance uh, changed consistently because they got rid of the original theme mm. and started making you know western based versions of the game and didn't really give them the direction for that series and Castlevania you know that has almost stayed steady and true the whole way through and even when it didn't and they sort of tried to depart and implement Kojima with the Lords of Shadow games it still felt like you know Castlevania and it's like so you had these three big franchises that Especially, I, I was counting Pez the fourth because that's continued beyond the rest of them. But that, you know, as a series, that literally has just been the same series throughout. So, can't do anything about that. But here, you know, you have Castlevania that is the next step up, which is like still definitely Castlevania, still does a lot of the same things. You might not agree with the way we're doing it, but it's a slightly different take. 
in many ways, in when you think about horror, especially in movie terms, yeah, the biggest franchises are the ones that generally just do the same thing many movies over. And uh, people want that. The general public want that. They want the same experience over and over, slightly different. And Castlevania is the, the, one, the only one of the big three that really did that. You know, it, it got it perfectly. You know, it, it didn't tank halfway through because they decided they need some sort of weird reboot with people that didn't really understand it. You know, it, it became this whole. This is the bad thing about it. You know, it's like as much as it looks like a failure in the last few years that there was only like three or four games in a decade when before that you were getting many mm-hmm. you know, every day, every 10 years is that that was the period where Konami were clearly sort of distancing themselves from games in general and yet they still have supported it more than either of the others you know the other two they, they've put out the remasters they've put out the obscure games I mean they put Rondo of Blood out there you know of all games you know they put it out there and they remastered not remastered it so much they put out a bloody decent port you know of that game yeah. and there it is you know it's there for people to play That they've shown that series respect and then you think of the Netflix series as well on top of that mm. you know all this time Konami have not really cared about games and franchises and stuff like that the only franchise that has sort of persevered throughout that time where they've really not had a relationship with games in the same way is Castlevania I think probably the whole again when you're referring to the consistency of the gameplay it probably helps for the fact that the first three NES games uh, were all mm-hmm. directed by the same person, Hitoshi Akamatsu. And then yeah. with uh, Super Castlevania IV, uh, it was a new director, Masahiro Ueno, and he sort of basically took the blueprint from the first three Castlevanias, well, yeah. basically one and three. I mean, there's it's basically what it was, was Super Castlevania IV and Castlevania three were being developed at the same time. And it was kind of a case where, you know, depending on uh, because whatever came out first uh, or it was scheduled to come out first uh, uh, for Super Castlevania 4, Ueno was going to basically try and get elements from the last NES game, which in that case Mm -hmm. was uh, Simon's Quest, which again was kind of it was a departure. It was, uh, which again, when you come back to it again with Igarashi and the Igavania, you know, splintering, if you want to call it that, there was still that, <laughs> there was still the the core, there's still that core Castlevania gameplay, but it was sort of expanded upon uh, that kind of grew to its own thing that, again, you still have... You know, you have fans that are divided where you want the classic, you know, side-scrolling, uh, you know, platforming of the early games yeah. versus, you know, the exploration and the leveling RPG elements of the uh, Metroidvania series. But they're still they're still tied in together uh, yeah. because of the core gameplay. 
Well, I think that that's why it works so well, right? Is that again, like it's coming from its very sort of rudimentary roots, for lack of a better phrase, in terms of it being this very, whilst horror aesthetic and stylized, right? It is very straightforward in terms of it being this action platformer. But I think that that is the perfect basis for the franchise, right? In that it is able to experiment with the RPG mechanics, with the Metroidvania mechanics, and leaning more into those and also the storytelling element. But again, at the base level of the experience has been consistent since the very first game, right? Of course, again, it's been refined over the years and the decades at this point. Um, But it is the type of thing where it's like, I loved uh, revisiting the, or for the first time, experiencing the anniversary collection where I got to go from Castlevania then to Castlevania 2, Simon's Quest, and being able, after just like four or five button presses, jump between these different titles and being able to almost immediately see the changes and the developments within them from a gameplay perspective. And I mean, going from Castlevania to number two in Simon's Quest, that's the type of thing where immediately I noticed changes and differences that while they might not have returned to it with uh, Castlevania three, the idea is, is that later in the series now, my frame of reference, I'm like, oh, okay, I see inklings from these earlier titles and how, again, they were further fleshed out and developed to giving us some Mm. of the best modern or more modern Castlevania experiences that are out there. But I mean, in talking about it for as long as we have, I mean, for 2021, it's one of those things where we have several Castlevania milestones this year, which I think Mm. is funny that, again, we've almost gone 30 minutes without mentioning. I mean, it's the 35th anniversary of the original Castlevania. Then you've got the 30th anniversary of Belmont's Revenge, which was in August. And then Super Castlevania turns 30 at the end of this month. And then Symphony of the Night turns 24 uh, on the 2nd of October. So it's one of those things where it's very timely for us to be talking about it. But in talking about all of these past editions and uh, iterations in the franchise, Mike, I have to ask, what was your first uh, introduction to Castlevania? Did you come to it from just day one? The original Castlevania, or did were you kind of like me and I experienced it much later and then worked my way back? Oh, that's it's a good question. Uh, for me, it's kind of a little convoluted. Uh, I hope you don't mind a story, but nope. anyways, we love anecdotal <laughs> stories here at uh, Safe Room. It's essential. It's essential. <laughs> so, I mean, like many uh, impressionable uh, youth, I was into Ghostbusters and. You know all sorts of you know monsters and everything i one of the things that i really liked as a kid was uh, the universal uh monster movies mm. and also it that kind of set that that planted the seed i mean in terms of horror <laughs> but the thing that uh ironically i never actually played the original castlevania until much later in life what got me sort of interested in it ironically was captain n the game master <laughs> if, if you if you, you know for those who are playing the home game back in the 80s there was this cartoon that nintendo and uh nbc had put together that was basically it wasn't a glorified transformers sort of we're here to sell you all of these toys it was more of a case of you know we have all of these properties and we're trying to shoehorn them into one cohesive story and you know a part one of those 
uh, franchises was Castlevania. Uh, yeah. Unlike the fact that uh, with uh, the Castlevania series, you had Simon Belmont, who was a barbarian type player. Uh, Simon Belmont in Captain N was this vain, sort of narcissistic, <laughs> you know, almost cowardly in some cases, uh, big chinned. Uh, he was actually modeled off. The, af, I'm sorry. He was actually modeled off of the voice actor, uh, his likeness, which is kind of weird when you think about it. Uh, anyways, but he, I mean, in, in modern senses, he very much felt like Zach Brown again. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so it was kind of it was kind of weird that, you know, how would you like it? I don't know what it was, but it was just sort of, oh, you look at him and it's just like, oh, he's just like a goofball and he's just, you know, whatever. But mm. the next th- but the other thing that happened was that uh, my babysitter, her son, actually had a copy of Castlevania II, Simon's Quest. And at that age, I was I was probably seven uh, at that time, and I fired it up, and I was kind of you know I would play around with it. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then, you know, once nightfall hit, and it's just, you know, what a horrible night to have a curse, and you end up dying almost immediately, or at least I did. Uh, it's just sort of grew to that, and then from there, it sort of jumped to. It's funny how Jay mentioned the Game Boy uh, versions. My best friend at the time, my neighbor, uh, he actually got uh, had a, cap- a copy of Castlevania II: Belmont's Revenge for Game Boy, and again, it's it was the Game Boy. Like, we can talk about the Game Boy games uh, at a later point, but they were the kind of their own thing. But they still, again, had that same sort of Castlevania formula to them. But uh, it was kind of, I mean, instead of stairs, you had ropes, lots of them. And you didn't have you didn't have sub uh, sub weapons, but it was mostly just the fact that you powered up your whip and you threw a projectile. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then from there it kind of again uh, one of my friends uh, ended up getting a Super Nintendo, and one of the games he got was Super Castlevania Four, and I, I just fell in love with it. <laughs> uh, but again, it was. I should have prefaced this by the fact that my mom wasn't the biggest, biggest fan of all of these, you know, these horror type things. My dad couldn't care less, but my mom was kind of. Oh, I don't know. If that's going to give you nightmares or whatever. But little did she know, like years later, thirty years later, I'm this psychological mess right now as a horror fan. <laughs> but anyways, no. Uh, but uh, you know, eventually, you know, it was just sort of. From Super Castlevania 4, it jumped to when I was in high school. Somebody showed me Symphony of the Night, mm. and at in that at that point, it was just yes, this is this, I want, I have to get this game. So I eventually did, and it's still to this day one of my favorite games of all time. And it actually, as sort of as an aside. It actually got me my first job in the industry <laughs> because oh, wow. one of the one of the things uh, one of the things that uh, yes as spoiler I am in the industry so, uh, games industry <laughs> so don't ask me for any sort of thing whatever but anyways uh, you can't give us review codes no unfortunately not no not at this no but uh, no anyways one of the th- one of my first jobs uh, as a tester 
was like, we need you to write a review for this game to test your reading comprehension, that sort of thing. Anyways, so what I, uh, what I ended up doing was I ended up writing, uh, well, basically adapting my retrospective a couple of years ago of Symphony of the Night and adapting that to a review, and that actually got me the job. So it was kind of, oh, yes, Castlevania, Castlevania came through again. So, <laughs> and the, and of course the the rest they, I mean, the other thing that really sort of, again, with the advent of the internet was there was this there. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's still up there, but there's there was this website called the Castlevania Dungeon, and it was a fan site that was devoted to everything castlevania so you had yeah. you know from the very you had from the very beginnings of the nes but also the arcade games and the sharp x 6800 uh to again uh we talked about before the show uh rondo of blood you know pc engine exclusive yeah. uh you know from there it's just like everything and i just i i spent my lunch hours sometimes just pouring over the website and it's just becoming totally engrossed in it it's still i'm pretty sure it's still up it's out of date uh obviously but the but the main sort of thing that uh again it was just this this wealth of you know the gameplay the lore everything and it was just mm. I, I just it craved it and i just it i still to this day just remember spending my lunch hours just reading everything there was to know about the, you know, the different versions of the games, and you know, just uh. <laughs> so, anyways, that was that's that's my spiel. So, as the rest they as as they say, the rest is history, sort of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's a good spiel. That, that, that's a kind of that, that's a good spiel. I expect you know when when someone is passionate about a series, it usually does come across like that. You know, where it's it's never quite as simple as like I played this game I liked it it's like it, it, there's something behind it I think we covered this on many games uh, over the course of the last 20 or 20 plus episodes and had that where certain games were like oh you know I had this whole yeah I think we did it Quake very recently where you know I, was, I spent on about you know Quake meant so much to me from how I got into it and like how formative it was and I mean I was listening to a podcast earlier about like how you know if you're of a certain age and you experience certain media in that age it is it just imprints itself on you in a way that no other media will ever do later on you know, no matter how good that media is no matter how great you, you think it is it will never have the same impact and that, it's a very true hmm. statement I feel because I think back to certain things you know, from that 10 to 21 period uh, I think is what is stated and I think of stuff like uh, Metal Gear Solid 2, Sonic the hedgehog stuff like that Devil May Cry as we've discussed many times on this very series they are in that sort of region and they really hit you in a way that games don't later because you get used to them you get used to the formulas and the patterns and then it's either like you want to be challenged 
by what you're given or you know and in those cases it's usually you want to be challenged by things that aren't your favorites you know you, you don't want to be too challenged by stuff you know and then you have games that come outside that where you're like yeah no this, this gives me more of what I love about and Castlevania as I said earlier is it somewhere in the middle where it is you know you, you have a bit of both you, it tweaks little things here and there but fundamentally stays the same well that's why I kind of I, I described Mike as being a super fan and while that might have been an overestimation <laughs> at the same time at the same time though I use that phrase for people that it's to the degree that it's like okay so you played Castlevania at some point in your childhood but it didn't stop it yeah. didn't stop at that right and I think for me like that's it might it, be something it. like Doom or uh, Wolf 3D it wasn't that I just played it once back in the day because my neighbor, it was my neighbor's game and he had it and I was able to play it through him and I appreciate that fondly, but it does develop into this thing where it is this sort of adolescent obsession to a certain degree where yeah. you're reading about it, you're doing research, even for something like Doom, it's like, okay, I want to, this was an example for me where it was like, okay, all I thought about then was Doom and then wanting to read about it on forums and yeah. seeing what people had to say about it. And, oh, somebody noticed one, like, I don't know, my reading comprehension wasn't very good when I was a kid. So it was the type of thing where, oh, people on the <laughs> forum are more informed about this than I was. So all of a sudden there's all this information that I'm like, oh shit, yeah, this this is a feature of that or this is the sort of lore behind Doom or whatnot. So it yeah. is the type of thing where talking about franchises like Castlevania, it's like, yeah, it's a classic, but... It's. I think the more interesting thing is is how it becomes so ingrained in our individual kind of like gaming history, right? This idea that it's something you experience yeah. at a young age, and yet it was more so than just the one-off or the the game that you played for that year with that neighbor, right? It kind of just it's oh, that enjoyment that permeates throughout the entire series, and even if. I mean, like for me, I didn't play a ton of games growing up, but those core games that I did, I wanted to know everything about. And then, of mm -hmm. course, when I had the means yeah. to go back and try other iterations that I lost, it was a further obsession into my teens where it was like I was in high school and I was graduating in like 2010 and I was just getting around to like Half-Life 2 and things like that. And it was just like yeah. this whole new world I was experiencing. And yet all of my friends were playing I don't know, whatever new game was coming out in that era. But I was like, have you heard of this game called Half-Life 2? And all of a sudden they were like, dude, that's like a six or seven year old game. And it was just like my <laughs> obsession at the time. But I mean, a similar thing happened with like Castlevania, right? I mean, I came to it originally with Symphony of the Night. And then my buddies that were playing whatever was the modern equivalent on uh, probably at that time, like GBA or DS, they were like, well, have you heard of these? And then that was my whole new kind of gateway into it where I wanted to know all about these other games and whatnot, even though my entry to Castlevania was uh, at that point very dated. But Neil, for you, what was your introduction to Castlevania? Um, yeah, for me, it was absolutely Symphony of the Night. Um, not for me, it was for a friend. They had that game and uh, I know to this day that they idolize that game you know it's their avatar image on game servers it's you know part of their name and they adore it and it was the first time i think i really saw someone else love a game you know really adore a game you know, outside of my own personal experience I, you know I, you know at that point 
I had my own ideas of what I thought was a great game. And they were, you know, but at that point, generally quite cutesy uh, compared to, to what they liked. You know? And you know, I love Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic 2, uh, Streets of Rage 2. And they were, they were my babies. And then, but having discussions with the guy, then uh, Bob Harmer, I will, I will name him as, he may not listen to this, but I will name him. You, you never know. know. Yeah, you never know. But he was my next door neighbor. He had that and he adored Symphony of the Night. And he really just, back then, you know, before I really was into movies, before I was really into the idea of insightful critique into anything, you know, he described his love of that game in a way that utterly fascinated me. And uh, he, he really just drove home what made that game tick for him. And I'd never, I, at that point, I had never thought of games like that. You know, or anything. You know, it, I had never once thought beyond the "this makes me feel good." I'm playing it because it makes me feel good thing. You know, because naturally, you know, you're a kid at that point, and it opened my eyes in so many ways. And it, it's mad to think about it now, that but it really did just sort of change the way I thought about things entirely and opened up so much to me, you know, not just in terms of games, but like film and books and whatever, especially in the horror genre, Mm -hmm. because he was so passionate about what he was saying, you know, about how he felt about Castlevania, you know, and we've talked about this in the years beyond that you know where he's played like the remasters remakes whatever ports if you will of that game he gets it you know it, it to him it connects with how he felt you know in a, a troubled childhood you know divorced parents like that he he was seek he was seeking out darker things and he found this this game that really did it for him you know like like me, he still loves stuff like Sonic the Hedgehog and Sonic 2. But this was new to me, you know, the, this this whole avenue. I mean, we've talked on podcasts before about, you know, like people who introduced me to other horror games and like Resident, the first Resident Evil and like how it was a weird experience that like, I was introduced to it by a person that didn't really care for horror and was too scared to finish it. Uh, but here it was like someone who got horror and embraced horror, mm. you know, and he so adored it that I was really enamored with his opinion on it. You know, it's like at that age, you don't really get much beyond people going, oh, yeah, I, I like things because it, it's good. That's it. That, that is pretty much the only opinion you get on stuff uh, at that age and yet he was so introspective about it you know he he had these thoughts and feelings that connected to the game he was playing and you know it was mad 
to me because I had no connection with that game at the time. And I was like, well, I, I, I've got to get this a go. You know, I, I should really try this game. And, you know, while I didn't have the same sort of you know, epiphany that he did, it still made sense to me. I, I understood where he was coming from. And I think, to me, um, for the job I do now, it makes total sense. You know, that was like the launch point for what I do now, because it was the first time that someone else's opinion made me think differently about a video game, mm. you know? Because before that point, most games, when anyone talked about them, were very much black and white sort of stuff. It's like, it's good, it's bad, that's it. Right. And uh, that here was this person talking about something that I, I hadn't really experienced and I wanted to know more, you know? And it, and it was amazing to experience that myself, you know, and form my own opinions and form this strange bond, you know, in a way I had never done with games that I really loved. So while Symphony of the Night wasn't like my favorite game ever or anything, it became special to me in in a particular way because I had this personal connection. I mean, now these days, we do this every week. <laughs> and we we talk about games, and okay, we go. You know, last week we talked about Sun Hill Two, a game that I said to you last week. I don't feel like I have enough to talk about, mm. and then we talk about it, and I feel I find myself talking about it really personally, and getting into it massively. I was like back then, it was a case. This was new. This was fresh. This was something I'd never really experienced, and it was remarkable, you know. And and it was only going into this, sorry, this week that um, I really got that, you know, that I really understood that that was such a massive factor in my gaming heritage, if you will, in my gaming legacy. Well, yeah, I think that. The kind of conversations, especially with when we had with Silent Hill too, but also with Castlevania, right, is that I think that it is the best compliment that you can pay to a piece of art or a medium, uh, various mediums in terms of mm. like the conversations that you have that are almost outside of it to a certain degree, right? It's this idea where, and I don't want to misquote you, Neil, but I think at the genesis of this, when sort of you and I were getting to chatting, getting to know one another a little bit better than just on Twitter, kind of yeah. you had mentioned something along the lines of like Resident Evil has always been your go-to and you had appreciated Silent Hill when you came to it, but it wasn't quite for you in terms of just the yeah. type of experience that it was. Um, and I hope I'd, hmm. I'm not mischaracterizing your uh, initial no, no, views no, no, on no, it, no. but I think in getting no. to talk about it, it really shows that there's a lot more to certain games and it doesn't necessarily just have to be sort of our own anecdotal experiences with games. But I think that especially like with something like Castlevania, where again, like now the roles are reversed. I didn't think I would have much to say about Castlevania because it was something that it's a series that over my life, I have definitely played iterations of, but it had never been necessarily a mainstay staple in my, again, like quote unquote gaming history Mm. and whatnot. But it's something that I can appreciate that it does a lot more than I think a lot of platformers 
and action platformers and of course the later half of the series has definitely developed into more than that in terms of the metroidvania yeah. rpg mechanic type stuff which pat was talking about um but it is the type of thing where i think that it just goes to show there's a lot more to these different things and like the aesthetic of yeah. castlevania is one of those things that has i think superseded my own experiences where i've got this sort of hodgepodge of various entries that i've played but that horror aesthetic and yeah. you know the thing that we all love that horror aesthetic has always been the steadfast through all the iterations and the developments and whatnot to a degree that castlevania you know it's funny we're talking about konami games and you know the horror series that they've had <laughs> but also maybe the horror influences that they've had in things like metal gear I think in Castlevania, though, it's been the most steadfast to that identity, right? It has really yeah. been, and I mean, almost more so than Silent Hill, right? Silent Hill, of course, has always been horror, but we've had different iterations of horror. Whereas Castlevania, mm -hmm. it has always been this very sort of consistent gothic horror aesthetic all throughout. And while the gameplay has changed, the sort of horror thematics of it have remained the same. But from my experience, they haven't necessarily been diluted for somebody that has played so many different iterations of it right i think that no it, i used the word diluted earlier where it's like people might view it as being diluted but i think when you go back and i mean do what i did and play the anniversary collection that they have been steadfast in the dedication to the horror identity and specifically the sort of gothic vampiric castles and whatnot that they have been true to since the inception of the franchise I feel that's only that's only gotten stronger. It's never really waned throughout at least yeah. the ten or so iterations that I've played. How do you feel about that, Mike? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we've uh, uh, Louise actually uh, wrote an article uh, last month about uh, the horror movies and their monsters that inspire Castlevania. I mean, mm, yeah. Akamatsu. Yeah, it's a very good article. Akamatsu actually specifically sought out when making uh castlevania he basically said we want this to be like an epic movie for players to you know walk into as if they were in a if they were in a monster movie and to sort of jump over back to what uh neil was saying with the sort of the the love of Know, symphony of the night but it is but it's sort of it's a sort of a general thing if you want to uh, if you want to call it whether it be video games or yeah. film or books or whatever there's always that sort of there's those that moment in your and i i know it's going to sound cliche but it is just you know whatever <laughs> but it, there's always that moment in your childhood where you you never forget that special time whether it's playing you know you're you're at a sleepover and you're playing you know, symphony of the night until like four in the morning and you, <laughs> you end up, you miss a save point and you end up dying. And they're just like, Oh, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, we said this before, but it's just like, there's that sort of, there's that you don't care. And yeah. Yeah. the thing is, is that, you know, I admit that the series is not perfect. There's there, there is a learning curve to it. And there's, there can be, some people will see that as a, you know, again, the, the stiffness of the early games, see it as a flaw, but again, yeah. it sort of goes back to the ideas that Akamatsu instilled in the game where he wanted it, set it out deliberately where there was a learning curve. You learned to play. It wasn't a necessarily, 
it's not necessarily like Super Mario 3, uh, where it's yeah. very sort of, you know, pick up and play, you know, A is jump, <laughs> B is B is fireball, <laughs> hold B to run, that sort of thing. There's, I mean, there is sort of that learning curve, but very, very low. Whereas with Castlevania, it's sort of, again, the learning curve is obviously higher. Then there's also memorization, which again, in Mario 3, there is that as well. But you look at how, you know, again, take speedrunners, for example, where they will polish off, they know every single thing. They know the, the timing with frames. They know all the tricks in terms of, okay, you can get the yeah. holy water. You can, you can stun lock the bosses. You can make it so easy. And they finish the game in a half hour. Whereas, you know, for me, for example, uh, playing revisiting castlevania again it was sort of it took me you know a couple of hours before i finally got back into you know okay this is what i have to do and you know this is what i have to remember that sort of thing and again it's sort of it's that's there's something special about that i think because it's again it goes back like i said it's that moment in time where you know you really sort of get into it and you really enjoy the game for what it was i mean whether it's the gameplay whether it's the story you know whether it's the graphics obviously you know when you're you know six or seven you don't really care too much about stuff like that you're just like oh man this is fun i want to keep playing it so uh, yeah and of course when you're older you kind of look back and you say oh yeah i mean there's more to it and again that's that's that love of the series and appreciation of what you know what made it special yeah absolutely i mean it it, it really does make it you know, at the end of the day you have this thing that just encapsulates everything that made the series to that point and as we were saying that really does hit a lot of the Castlevania series no matter how different it became Mm. it was still fundamentally Castlevania well that's also the thing too like when you're talking about a franchise that's been around as long as this has been it's remarkable more so than it was just a staple of all of our childhoods at various places right I mean again it kind of comes back to what we were talking about when you go to the bare bones gameplay of Castlevania right because if the gameplay didn't hold up and again like yeah the further into the series you get to a certain point like it just gets better and more refined but Mm -hmm. at the same time though we're not just talking about this because we have this sort of anecdotal evidence of how fun it is like from a fundamental objective gameplay perspective right i mean again you come back to Mm -hmm. it being more challenging than platformers of that era and even today like when you look at some platformers like uh, mike had said you can't just pick up and play any Castlevania. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, I haven't played the most recent two ones that kind of like made the transition to 3D. But in terms of like the how people might view the traditional Castlevania experience, it is very much not something that you can just pick up and dominate within the first 10 minutes of playing it. Right. You kind of uh-huh. have to abide by the certain ramifications or rather the requirements for this very more strategic platformer. Um, but at the same time, I was kind of interested to learn that like Symphony of the Night's Metroidvania uh, adopting of that sort of style of gameplay was a reaction to people thinking the originals were too difficult, right? It was kind of like to give gamers the ability to um, sort of have these ways to buff their characters through leveling and XP, yeah. these sort of things that we now take for granted. But 
I just thought it was very interesting to see them adopt this gameplay style that would very much become what people identify Castlevania with or associate with Castlevania with um, to something that, again, I didn't necessarily think was the best example of like hardcore 80s games. But I think if anything, it just shows that the developers at the time definitely had this more hardcore mindset that took place during this more sort of like niche genre, right? Especially in the 80s, say what you will about horror in the 80s in terms of film, like games, it was definitely even more niche than that. And yet they were able to take sort of this action platformer staple and apply it to something that definitely, I think for the period, introduced more people to Castlevania than had they would have been willing to try out this sort of more weird sort of gothic horror game that would spawn into this franchise that would be uh, 35 years in the making, as it were. Yeah, I mean, the interactivity of games at that point was so intense that even the basics would work so well at that point. And yeah, it it really did for Castlevania. I think that resonated with many a person that really got into this franchise you know during the 80s 90s early period that uh you know that they they felt it you know that it was compelling horror you know in in a way that we were talking about before we even recorded this episode where there are so many different kinds of horror and even as a horror fan you generally are a fan of these things that aren't necessarily scary or jump scary or whatever you appreciate the atmosphere you appreciate the characters and the things you know the edge to them you know you, you don't necessarily give a shit about how scary it is you you don't want that about it um because you understand what the product should be you know you do, you don't want it to be the typical what most people would think of as a jump scary horror project because when people berate horror that is what it is it's like oh it's jump scares it's this it's this and this Castlevania is even when it it got to that stage not like that you know it it became its own thing well I think also like for me I'll be honest like I really don't care about the lore of Castlevania really like you know it's never <laughs> been my it's never been my uh, my interest in it it's always been and you know I, uh, people, it's, it's very much my yeah, shit <laughs> see people yeah no I'm definitely the odd man out and I'm definitely the one that is uh, that's it, my opinion of it is not in line with the majority of why people like the games like yeah. it has a very and, and it's ironic that it has now become an anime series for Netflix but the sort of anime approach to the world building and the storytelling and stuff has never been my bag and I'm totally fine with people that love it right there's I'm definitely in the minority there but I think that it's a testament to the world building in general from a uh, an environmental standpoint where that has been the engrossing element to me over the years right and it's why I kept coming back to it to the gameplay but more importantly and I think this is a big deal in terms of where Castlevania fits into the larger conversation of games and its place in history in terms of games, right, is that it has always been fundamentally a horror series more so than just, like, relying on these sort of, like, cheap jump-scary type things or being 
especially gory or anything like that, which I think, again, for yeah. people on the outside looking in, they're like, well, that's the horror experience. But in reality, Castlevania has never been about that. It has always been about uh, this very brooding sort of rudimentary gothic horror experience where you're investigating yeah. creepy castles with all manner of monsters and mm-hmm, exactly. anything that you yeah. encounter within the course of these castles or these environments it completely feels in line with the aesthetic no matter how fantastical it is and i think that it's really yeah. it's fantastic in terms of like it's a horror fan's dream that you have a world that is so fantastically horrifying that anything and everything, no matter the morphology or whatever, feels at home there. And that kind of takes it back to what Mike was saying in terms of this very much sort of being in the lines of like the universal horror type elements and things like that, where all of these things feel at home, even if you're like, wait a minute, why is there a floating eyeball in the same room as a lizard man that spits acid or whatever, right? I mean, everything just feels so in line that when you get to the truly bizarre uh, creatures or monsters or whatever, it just feels very Castlevania, whether or not the logic behind why this thing is here and that thing are in the same area, like whether or not there's a real justification for it. You're like, well, of course it's there. This is uh, the demonic hell realm that we're exploring. No, you're absolutely (laughs) right, uh, Jay. It's kind of weird because part of it was, I think that there's, part of it was Akamatsu's aim with the original series but then also the limitations placed on whether it's the technology or in in Nintendo's case you know ratings or, uh, I mean they couldn't show they couldn't show boobs or anything like or breasts or anything like that uh, and so they had to work within that frame and then of course later on they, they Konami was able to push the envelope a little bit more uh, with uh, Rondo of Blood and then as well as symphony it just kept on going from there but no you're absolutely right with regards to uh the fact that no matter what was uh what was in the castle or on the castle grounds for that matter it still felt castlevania even when you know when you had this the soul sega genesis or mega drive in in neil's case uh the sole entry there with uh bloodlines mm-hmm. they tri- konami tried to meld bram stoker's dracula this st- that story into the castlevania storyline i mean it's yeah, kind of, it was kind of, it was admittedly it's kind of it kind of it kind of worked in some regards i mean there was there were other elements yeah. as well but the fact that you weren't in transylvania that you were hopping all the way around Europe mm. and there were, you know, again, whether you had skeletons wearing German helmets, you were facing <laughs> off against cog monsters, you were facing off against harpies uh, in Rome. It just all felt, again, it's, it's all just sort of felt connected because it was within this yeah, universe. Absolutely. And it was still fun. That was the thing. It just like you never took you out of the. It never took you out of the game. It was just like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's just you know, it's a different type of monster. Well, I think to uh, reinforce that point, like me coming to a lot of the early games and Bloodlines included, right? That was part of the anniversary collection, so I got to play some of that. I think that jumping between all of these different eras of Castlevania and seeing the sort of incremental. Uh, again, like refining of gameplay, new additions, new tones in terms of like the types of story they're trying to tell. 
everything, obviously, it's different, and yet it feels tonally, at least, in line, or maybe tonally is even the wrong way to phrase it, but just in terms of the Castlevania experience, even the deviations that they make from uh, game to game, it still feels in line in a way that I think eludes a lot of series. Like, earlier, I think before we, or maybe it was this episode, earlier we were mentioning like plat- other platformers that have been successful over the years with lots of iterations, and we mentioned like Mario. Like, okay. Mm. But with Mario, and it's obviously very deliberate, but there, there are entries in the Mario series where it's like, okay, this is like Mario Sunshine. This is a very clear deviation from the traditional experience that feels very foreign while it's got all the same variables that everybody's familiar with from those games. It's still a very clear deviation that they didn't necessarily return to again in all of the ways that they did in that game. And that's not a knock against it. That's just an example, though, of a franchise that is similar in terms of it being like an action platformer, but they take these sort of hard turns that are successful and that's not arguable in a lot of cases in terms of Mario, but they're very clear deviations from what they've been doing that aren't in line with a lot of what came before it and what follows it later in life. And it's not a knock, it's just a fact. Whereas at least with my experience with what I've played of Castlevania and of course all those games in the anniversary collection, they're incremental changes which I come to appreciate more so than it being them taking this massive swing that feels completely out of place. And granted, it might work, it might not, but it's just very interesting for me to come to a franchise that has made lots of little changes over the years. And even though there's a massive change, like with Symphony of the Night, right, where it is this sort of RPG mechanics, it's supposed to be, quote unquote, easier for players that aren't as hardcore and all these different things. (laughs) It still feels like they're not skipping a beat and it's not taking this. It's not a massive swing, like giving uh, Alucard or whoever this sort of like a jetpack that shoots water or whatever they did in Mario (laughs) Sunshine. Right. It is very sort of just this experience that feels different but there's just enough that's familiar that it doesn't feel like a big ask to have the player buy into a new system for the first three hours before they're like, shit, this really works. And then running with that for the rest of that experience. Yeah, it, it really does just make the difference. I think that you have this constant evolution, I suppose you would call it, between games that uh, I think really despite how things have gone and how would you think of the last game that really came out was Lost of Shadow 2 which was critically panned all the same um, Castlevania as a series before that had really pushed into a new direction and, and, and become this whole new entity so it, like you said Jay, it's amazing that this series has stuck to its guns, you know, so adamantly for, for, for 35 years <laughs> and still managed to be its own thing you know, I, I said earlier it's like, out of the three series that we have from Konami that really have gone the distance um, it's the only one that has really done that you know it's like Silent Hill they lost their way Metal Gear Kojima still had the reins but he was always wanting to take it somewhere else you know 
But Castlevania, no matter where they went with it, they really wanted to keep the show going, you know? And it shows right up to the last thing, which is now what, seven years ago. <laughs> yeah. you know? And, you know, we're, we're coming seven years ago from Lords of Shadow 2, which depressingly, like every single Konami franchise that is dead at this point, has a really bad received final episode. Mm. You know, it's like you, you think of Silent Hill, you think of Castlevania, you think of Metal Gear. You know, they have all had a very bad final sort of epitaphs for that those franchises. So it, it is very heartwarming to think they are actually going to try and correct that, you know, in all of those franchises. And but Castlevania needs the least, you know, of all of them. Because I think it never quite reached that higher pedestal mm. but for, for many people, but it did enough that you're kind of annoyed that it didn't get the respect it deserved. I think that's a pretty good way of putting it in terms of just like, I don't maybe in terms of like the three Konami uh, franchises that we're all thinking about that are yeah. related to horror that have horror influences, maybe Castlevania's audience has been the, maybe the quietest to put it respectfully in terms of just like Silent Hill and Metal Gear, right? Mm. Think about how vocal those fan bases are, right? In terms mm. of when you compare Castlevania to that, they have probably been the least vocal to a degree in terms of just like wanting a return to Castlevania. And I would say, and granted, I didn't play the two, ent- the Lords of Shadows entries, but I watched my roommate in college play them. And I was like, well, these don't really look like the Castlevania that I prefer. And yet again, there are still variables from it that at least yeah. feel in line with it. It didn't feel like it was necessarily these massive swings that were kind of like spitting in the face almost for lack of a better term in the memory or the identity of Castlevania. No, in a way. I mean, this is it. it um, I feel Kojima's involvement in Lord of the Shadow, the first game really took that franchise to another level that the others didn't get, you know, it's like even in the stuff that Kojima is more, intimately involved with it made me think of Mogus Hollow 5 it's like when you think of Lords of Shadow it was perfect you know it, it wasn't necessarily the uh, a perfect Castlevania game but it did so much right you know mm-hmm. that it deserved to be recognised it, it the only reason I feel that it doesn't get the recognition it deserves is because it didn't get the port that so many series have done from the last gen. I guess before we really kind of like dive into the future of what could look like for Castlevania uh, and the news that uh, at the time of this recording actually broke today, um, we should probably just like highlight sort of what is maybe a favorite or just a standout Castlevania title. I won't hold either of you to what is the definitive <laughs> Castlevania experience, but I think it's worth mentioning maybe what is a Castlevania 
title over the course of that 35-year history, which every time I say it, it grows more and more daunting in terms of thinking of a horror franchise that has been around as long as that. Um, what is, Mike, for you, what is one of the Castlevania fran- uh, entries rather that is really a standout all these years later for you? Oh, that's a well. That's a tough question. You know, you you you, you <laughs> yeah, pretty you, you made it. Uh, you put it perfectly in terms of just there's there's so many memorable entries in terms of you know whether it's the classic platforming, whether it's the Metroidvanias, you know, even even if you wanted to go that far. I mean, I know that there are some there are some fans of the Castle the Castlevania sixty four uh, games. Uh, you know, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, uh, and I'd be, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say, if I didn't mention Rondo of Blood, because I know that whether, but, but the fact that, you know, when you think about it, we, if we didn't have, if Konami didn't have as much success as they did in Japan with Rondo of Blood, you wouldn't get Symphony of the Night. And it's sort of yeah. going going back to what you were saying. It's just there. Even though I know some people will say, "Well, what about Castlevania Two, Simon's Quest?" That's like you know, the black sheep of the yeah. black sheep. But when you think about it, again, it's sort of there's still that core. That's still that core platforming. There's still elements in there that yeah. still make it a Castlevania game. And even though with uh, they went. Akamatsu went back to Castlevania Three with the traditional quote-unquote platforming. You still had the a bit of the the exploration uh, aspect with the branching paths and with the multiple characters that you could play as. And even then, even with even with uh, of course with Super Castlevania Four, which is essentially a remake of the first game, which you know there's nothing wrong with that. That was sort of it still improved upon and made it a little more accessible for for people and that's what that was what uh, Ueno had uh, meant for it to be it was still more accessible but at the same time it was still you know memorable for a lot of reasons yeah but again it's sort of again with Rondo of Blood there's still those elements that are brought over but then there's some that are progressing and then you get into Symphony and then the whole Metroidvania concept takes off and i think to touch on what you said with in terms of the castlevania fans being the least vocal i mean it, it's neck and neck between them and contra i think contra <laughs> contra fans are kind yeah. of contra fans have been kind of short-shifted but yeah. uh no with but the thing is again it's sort of the fact that you have all of these games that have come out that have been labeled metroidvania which it's kind, yes. which is kind of a, which is kind of a misnomer when you think about it, because Akamatsu, when he was, when he had, uh, when that was asked if there was any influence of Metroid on uh, the development of Castlevania Two, he actually cited uh, an actual earlier uh, Konami title called Maze of Gallius, which was sort of a platform adventure game in the similar vein of Simon's Quest. So it's just yeah. kind of that's where that that's kind of a misnomer, but everyone kind of no, but but Maze of Gallius never came out here anyway, so people really don't know about it. So it's just easier for them to glom onto Metroid. But again, oh, getting, yeah, so. but again, getting back to what I was saying, it's just that 
one of the reasons probably that fans haven't been as vocal is just because of the fact that again there's so, been so many metroidvania style games that have come out even today that are still coming out uh you know games like grime that uh is mixing a big mi- is a little mix of uh, souls like in there or i Again, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Bloodstained, mm. which, again, I yeah, absolutely, yeah. the first time I saw that, I played it, I was just, yeah, <laughs> I have to, I have to finish this all the way through. And it, it was yeah. just kind of, I, I did, unfortunately, I admit that I didn't back it on Kickstarter, uh, <laughs> which I probably, I probably should have, but it's, anyways, it's just, it's still games like that. Again, it's just that, I think that's the reason why there hasn't been that as vocal of a of a resurrection if you want to call it of Castlevania because yeah. that it's it's just prol- proliferated the whole Metroidvania style and so you do get you do get glimpses of of Castlevania in there which while it's not pure Castlevania it's still good enough if you want to call it that and I don't think you, yeah, I don't absolutely. think you could say the same thing about Silent Hill or uh, Metal Gear Solid. You could say that there are Metal Gear Solid like or Silent Hill like yeah. games, but there's nothing like the the originals. And I think that's uh, that's the difference between those franchises and Castlevania. Is yes, no. absolutely, definitely. I mean, how how about for you, Neil? What is uh, one of the Castlevania experiences maybe that? stands out for you without putting a uh, this is my favorite or this is the definitive uh, experience as it were <laughs> well you know I, I put out earlier about uh, my symphony of the night experience but um, I'm going to sound like the ultimate Kojima wank here. <laughs> if you had just said <laughs> symphony of the night we would have been like we get it it's a good game like, yeah that, that's yeah. the go to answer yeah. come on but you know Lords of Shadow is just that was what got me interested properly in the franchise. You know that that, that made it for me because yeah, you know, as we have discussed all, at length, you know, on many games, I will pretty much be into anything that man puts out uh, out there, and he did. He he put that out there, and it was just magical to me and while it's not traditional Castlevania and I think both Symphony of the Night and Rondo of Blood are brilliant Castlevania games I really just have this fascination with with what Kojima did with that series where he for a very brief time if he had not had this whole bad blood with with Konami, he almost got that franchise back up and running, you know, with what he did and what his team did. And, yeah, so Lords of Shadow is perfect to me in terms of it's a Kojima game in a very loose sense. But it also feels very pure to what Castlevania is. So it, it has been long, long been my favorite sort of game in that, that franchise. If I'm going to pick a number two, it's Rondo of Blood. Because um, 
I, as much as I sort of roll my eyes at sadistically hard games, you know, that game is the game I enjoyed the most. You know, I really did get what it was going for and really embraced the sadistic side of it. You know, I, I, I was there for it. I was totally happy to be embracing it. And yeah, I, had it not come out again, like it did a few, and you know, for all the shit Konami get, they they re-released that game and and gave it to a wider audience, including me, and I was just so happy to experience it and to enjoy it anew. You know, uh, it's like as much as Symphony of the Night, like we've discussed on this podcast a few times now. It has this, uh, you know, significant value to me in terms of my experience as a person who plays games and critiques games. But Rondo of Blood is amazing, you know, in it feels like the most pure game in terms of Castlevania, you know, and Laws of Shadow is like this whole other thing where it's like it takes it to a new level and makes it modernizes it in a way that Konami always felt like they were scared of doing something new with that you know and, and really pushing that series forward which you know looking back maybe okay I understand it I, I get it I, I understand why they don't want to make this the way forward for that franchise but at the time it was like when Castlevania really wasn't like out there as this big thing when you know at the time Konami was still a big dog in the race um, but now yeah, it, it just really makes sense that they, they pushed it the way they did yeah I think it's interesting I mean I again I haven't played Lords of uh, Shadow but I was always curious if and both of you can weigh in on this, obviously, um, whether something is lost in the transition from that 2D or 2.5D sort of uh, standard, or standard for lack of a better word, uh, sort of Castlevania viewpoint or uh, presentation, mm. right? I mean, it's one of those things where it is very, obviously you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, that's 2D or 2.5D is very traditional, yeah. but is something lost in whether it be like the texture of Castlevania or the aesthetic even in that transition? Uh, obviously, Neil, you're a fan of Lords of Shadow, so I'll let Mike uh, answer that first and then we'll come back to you for the rebuttal <laughs> just because I, I have a feeling. Yes. Say, uh, yes. yeah. I would say, I would definitely, uh, definitely say that there is something, there has, there was something lost when, again, going back to the Castlevania 64 games, where yeah. you had Konami was having trouble again with the camera it was just like it was kind of one of those things that like a lot of developers at that time were it was growing pains essentially oh, yeah. that they couldn't get the camera they couldn't get the fact that players were having trouble you know navigating jumps which again were the staple of the 2D platforming <laughs> not necessarily the same uh, it doesn't translate as well uh, to 3D, and again, even even after you know the the Nintendo 64 games with 
uh, you know, the PS2 and the Xbox games with Lament of Innocence and Curse of Darkness, there was still... They tried to go back to... They tried to, again, try to get with the... To perfect 3D, but again, there was still that something that was lost. Again, was the, whether it was the camera or just you know whatever. There was something. It was it was there was something that was missing from that from the earlier Castlevanias. I mean, that's there weren't. It doesn't make them a bad game per se. Not at all. No. no. I mean, I really enjoyed. I sincerely enjoyed Lament of Innocence and Curse of Darkness, even though they just kind of. Even though Lament of Innocence really didn't have Simon Belmont or Dracula involved per se, but still, it was it was still an enjoyable game. But again, it was just their Konami again, just like many like many developers, just had trouble transitioning from 2D to 3D because Absolutely. yeah, there's there are elements that are lost. Absolutely, yeah, and I think yeah. Neil, why don't you? Uh offer your uh, not not necessarily a rebuttal i don't want to frame it that way but i mean even as somebody i mean you're of the opinion that you enjoyed lords of shadow one at least right i mean is there an element that you felt maybe was lost in that transition to 3d and yet something was gained in this leap to the new perspective because you have to imagine something had to have been gained otherwise it would have been this colossal failure which it is not (laughs) sure well um, we got over this earlier where I was saying that, you know, of Konami's big three, you know, it was the least developed, you know, uh, in terms of story, narrative, you know, and lore. But this is where Kojima's sort of input comes in, where it sort of adds a little, little to it. And I think with Lords of Shadow, there, there was just something about he added to that franchise where the melodrama you know you know we've discussed this before where it's like I understand totally where people sort of you know, declare Kojima as a hack or they say that you know oh he can't write good you know, as it is but he still adds something to basic video game stories because um if you declare Kojima a hack in terms of like actual storytelling, you know, in terms of like movies or books or whatever, yeah, okay, I get it. I can get why you might feel that way, but in video game terms, um, especially for that period, he is still like leaps and bounds beyond most storytelling uh, agents at that time. And what he did with that game you know and having Patrick Stewart of all people sort of deliver his that that dialogue made it feel like we 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 talk about how you know this deals with Dracula and this universal horror idea of Dracula with Kojima it almost switches that up to a hammer sort of horror style style of uh, Dracula and there's a melodrama there that works well when you think of it like that and I just adore it and this again this maybe this is just bias from coming from that country you know uh, where Hammer comes from 
um, but it works for me in in such a way. It's like that man may have been born in Japan, but he has such a knack for understanding a very British aesthetic to horror. You know that I I can't help but love. You know I I, I and there with Lord of the Shadow he got it so well you know he it really did feel like Hammer Horror video game you know which I've never seen before never seen since you know and that's a you know, this is very much a personal view because how could it not be but it's it, be, it was something I felt very personal you know I, I I wanted this to be my kind of game in that regard because I it just it uh, while it's not Christopher Lee blah 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 bright red blood that sort of thing it still maintains something about that horror I grew up with you know that the very British style of horror that I wanted to embrace it more you know I, I really really dug what was being done and I, I just adored that so you know it's like as much as early Castlevania games are very good as I've said you know like with Rondo of Blood I, I just think this was the perfect game for me you know because I came you know my great love of video games came at a time where I was really getting into movies and Kojima was perfect for that sort of time period where he was he was the only person I really felt that understood the you know getting both things right yeah I mean I know we talked last week about Silent Hill 2 and how well it encapsulates that you know uh, Lynch style horror it was fundamentally still a video game developer's idea of a Lynch style horror game you know whereas Kojima just he fucking nailed it as a video game developer <laughs> he, under, he he understands how it should work you know and how it translates to be this special thing that you won't get anywhere else and I think unless you're in that moment you're never going to really experience it the same way and that goes for any of his games you know any of his team's games in the years since it's like if you weren't there for PT if you weren't there for MGS5 if you weren't there for MGS2 with the sort of intention you wouldn't get it in the same way it's like and I, I totally get that, and I respect that so much about him. He feels like a genre fan making genre games, right? I mean, he draws the best, yeah. the best uh, that you could possibly want as being a fan of the genre into that. But I think it's interesting to talk about Lords of Shadow, especially, and then obviously bleeding into the second game and how it is making these fundamental changes to this established franchise. Yeah. And I think that's a great jumping off point in terms of speaking about the future of Castlevania and what that could potentially look like. Yeah, yeah. In, t- in terms of uh, the news we've heard recently where you know, we are learning of remasters, remakes, and reimaginings of all three of Konami's big franchises, you know, in Silent Hill, Castlevania, 
and Metal Gear. It is, you know, something to think about, you know, in terms of how each have been approached in their uh, air quotes, demise, if you will. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting just in terms of like seeing where the franchise has obviously been in that 35-year history and now it being sort of dormant for what is, I believe, seven years since Lords of Shadow 2. I mean, it really is up in the air in terms of like what we're going to get in the next chapter of Castlevania. I mean, personally, my money would probably be on in that we're going to get something that feels like a, a safe or air quotes like soft reboot right this idea we're going to get something that is very familiar they're going to gloss something up hopefully it's a gloss up in terms of uh something like the quake that uh quake port that we got where right they touch it up enough that there's it's devoid of sort of some of the rough edges right of what would have been experienced in the original version and yet it has not been glammed up to the degree that it is unrecognizable from what people that had played it and loved it for all those years had recognized. I mean, that would be where my money's at in terms of Castlevania especially. But, uh, I mean, Mike, for you, being a fan of Castlevania and having this history with it and it being this sort of franchise that's always been part of your gaming history, as it were, I mean, what would you potentially want for the next thing that we see from Castlevania? Well, that's a again. That's an interesting uh, question. I mean, they're all interesting questions. But <laughs> <laughs> anyways, no. <laughs> but the thing is, it's funny because uh, early in uh, Super Castlevania IV's development, the idea was uh, floated that the game would actually take place in modern or, mm. or more modern times, and I don't necessarily think that that's the best idea, best way for a game that's firmly rooted in gothic horror to go i mm. think it has to i mean there's again it, we talk, we talk about bloodlines before but it was still there was still that element of gothic horror to it it was not quite it was a little closer to modern era but not quite all the way there it's sort of it was sort of that in between uh so I think that it was I, like you. I think it probably will be sort of a safe, quote unquote, uh, reboot, if you want to call it that. I mean, it's again the going back to the gameplay. You can't really can you really have a, ga- a Castlevania game set in modern times and still be able to whip candles or fight off skeletons and Medusa heads and all that stuff? I mean, you might i mean it might it's kind of it's kind of trying to shoehorn it but uh no i think that it's like you said it's i think that they should would probably if they were smart konami were smart and i'm sure they are because they've been waiting they realize oh yeah we really should stick to what we know (laughs) and stick to what works and stick to that sort of uh medieval sort of gothic horror aspect slash timeline and uh really anything else probably would feel out of place yeah i mean again like somebody like me that is not necessarily as in love with the lore as a lot of people might be with castlevania 
my hope would be in that even if they would decide to bring it to the modern day, which I'm very much in the camp like you, whereas like I see that uh, introducing more issues than it actually solves, maybe in terms of being a re- soft reboot of sorts to uh, get the Castlevania name out there again for the first time in seven years. It would be the type of thing where even if they did go in that direction, as misguided as that might be, so long as the gameplay, though, again, you're taking it right back to um, the sort of intro for that. It would be the sort of thing yeah. where it's like, so long as they nail the gameplay, who gives a shit, right? It's kind of mm-hmm. the same thing along <laughs> the lines of, and again, not to always bring it back to Doom, but I mean, when Doom rebooted in 2016, right? I think according to the, I believe in the no clip documentary, they detailed one of the big uh, challenges was, oh, are they going to bring this back to Earth, right? And that kind of was mm-hmm. one of the things where it was like, okay, if they do that, which the franchise had done previously back in the day, how are you going to evoke the Doom aesthetic and then all of a sudden, like, are you just going to mm. slap them in, like, New York or Detroit or Chicago or whatever, right? This idea where it needs to be very much in line with the classic iteration of something while having a certain level of polish and maybe some tweaks to the formula but it never feels foreign to that classical experience. And that's not so much like just appeasing the sort of, again, like the rose tinted glasses that I referenced earlier in the episode, but it's more so that fundamentally it needs to be in line with what was established. It needs to respect the past while making iterations. And those iterations can't be so foreign that you're like, well, this is too much of something else in what I was expecting or what I came to love as it were. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the problem, I think, with, I guess, limiting yourself in terms of Castlevania is that, you know, you can only, I mean, all the games, the sequels have, you know, it's like going uh, backwards in terms of Simon Belmont's ancestors or predecessors. And it's, you know, you kind of, you kind of do limit yourself in that regard. It's kind. It's kind of a. It's it's a double-edged sword. Obviously, I mean, for lack yes. of a better term, you do want to remain faithful to you know the aesthetic, but at the same time, there's only so far you can go, uh, unless you come up with something totally unexpected, uh, which is kind of again kind of difficult. But or you just play it safe. Which, and of course, you will get these people that are saying, oh, it's just another Castlevania game. It's the same old story. It's like, well, yeah, but it's kind of, you do, there is, again, you know, there is, again, going back to where, as Neil said, you know, with Kojima adding, that's adding much needed story and background to uh, Lords of Shadow, it's kind of, do you... There's only so far, <laughs> again, so far you can go, uh, hmm. you know. So it's it's again. I just to sum it up. I guess yeah. It's just there's only there is really a limit, but it's just playing it smart. I think you you have yes. to you have to play it safe, but also play it smart in terms of yes, it's derivative, but it's not as derivative as what we could have gone. No. Or we could have gone in this totally other direction that wouldn't have been Castlevania. We didn't specifically get, like, what is one of your maybe favorite entries or one of your preferred entries? What would you then say is one of the entries that somebody that, like, let's use me as an example, somebody that hasn't necessarily 
had the sort of full swath of the Castlevania experience, what might be a good sort of jumping off point? Because like, again, I'll use me as an example, the anniversary collection. If somebody said, oh, well, it's on at the recording of this episode, at least it was five bucks on Xbox Live. What is one of six or so games in that series? I would say jump right into Super Castlevania 4. That seems to be the most streamlined and refined version of what came before it. And then if you enjoy that, you can go back and appreciate the history before that and then see kind of the deviations that came after it. For you, what would you say is maybe one of the better titles in terms of being an introduction to Castlevania? No, you, well, it's again, you said Super Castlevania 4, which is, I would think, is probably a good jumping off point. It's, it's one of the easier Castlevanias, and I say that, but then it's also, it can also be quite tough. <laughs> the, the late, the later, bo- the later boss fights, especially with death, or the gauntlet, if you want to call that, uh, uh, just those. But also, I, again, the Uemo had, specifically t- uh, had in mind to making it a more accessible to players at that time so they wouldn't get frustrated mm. and so mm. and but again it's but castlevania again another testament to it to the series is just that it has it has a good difficulty scale i mean yes mm. it's the, it's a tough but fair series but it starts out slow you I mean, the very first boss that you face in Castlevania is a giant bat. It's like, how generic can you get? It's very predictable. And then uh, from there, it's just it just gradually increases, which is again uh, a perfect uh, a perfect way to actually have a game play out. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds kind of weird. It's like, oh, yeah. but no, it's it's the balance is essentially you know perfect in terms of being accessible but also challenging uh, yeah. obviously uh symphony is one of my again near and dear to me uh that was that would be a good one and also the fact that i one of the things that we was just you know when we were talking about you know our adoration our love for the series you know part of it is sort of the fact that you can love something, but you can admit that it that it's not perfect. I mean, uh, I admit absolutely that there's there are problems with it. I mean, you know, it's not as I mean with the earlier Castlevania games. There's the again the accessibility is not for you know again it's not Super Mario Brothers. You can't pick up and play it. You can try, but there is a learning curve to that. Symphony. Oh, absolutely. Symphony. There is that. Uh, there is that uh, later game where it's admittedly com- completely broken uh, because you get you can get so overpowered that uh, all the bosses you can just if you have the if you have the Alucard shield and the shield rod you can basically walk over everything mm. with it by just activating the uh, the special attack and it's that being said I mean and I just realized we never talked to we we never even talked about the music <laughs> of the series, which is again, which probably is against the law in terms of gaming. I mean, you yeah, can't, ta- you cannot talk about, <laughs> you cannot talk about Castlevania without the music. I mean, everything. I mean, granted, Konami has always been spectacular when it when it comes to their music. Mm. I mean, 
Again, yeah. Metal, yeah. Metal Gear, Silent Hill, all their games, even even one-offs, have been spectacular. But Castlevania, there's just something about their music that's again going back to what Akamatsu had envisioned that you're on this epic adventure, you're in a movie, and the music yeah. definitely reflects that. I mean, I th- there's a reason why there have been at least four, not so much tribute albums, but Konami, uh, Konami's sound team has done arrangements of, you know, even though even they did they did even did a rap <laughs> a rap album, <laughs> with, which is something to be heard. But you know, like the Perfect Selection series, you know that is just if you really wanted to have if you're into if you're into hard rock and metal, you know that's what you want to hear. Yes. But even then, it's just kind of you know, it's like beginning Vampire Killer, Bloody Tears, you know, all of those ones. Theme of Simon, for that matter, uh, or Dracula's Castle from Symphony. It's just. There's so much, it's again, just part of what makes, it's just for me at least, it makes that, it's so difficult to say, to pinpoint what game I love definitively. And I could say that, you know, it's like, you know, again, I say Super Castlevania 4, which the Konami must have had black magic or whatever to have been able to <laughs> at that early and it was people forget it's an early snes title and they were able to crank out some amazing music with it whereas mm. you know other games at that time not all of them but some of the games were just like rah, 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 rah. <laughs> uh but it's again and then of course as, as i said with symphony uh rondo of blood which is probably Oh, I I'd, I put it neck and neck in ter- with Cyber Castlevania 4 in terms of the best soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, so it's really kind of I don't know. You can't again. We just we just talked about it. So, so again, we <laughs> we covered that base. But again, it's just again the music is just another component to the series that just makes it so enjoyable. Yeah. Well, I think that that's indicative of the best series and franchises, right? Is that we can talk oh, for yeah. almost two hours about it, and yet we've barely scratched the surface, right? I mean, Neil and, oh, yeah, Neil exactly. and I had this last week with uh, Silent Hill 2, right? We talked for almost two <laughs> hours, and we finished, and as soon as we finished, Neil was like, man, I barely scratched the surface of what I wanted to talk about. It's the type of thing where it's just <laughs> yeah, like, it's like, we need like, to be like a six-hour, like as if it was like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History type thing, where it's like, okay, well, he's it, a yeah, three- I mean, three and a half hour episodes to get to everything but that comes down to like the best (laughs) of franchises and series that you would identify as being like classics right and again Mm -hmm. more so devoid of just a sort of anecdotal element to it it's like no over the i mean granted it's been a, a franchise that's existed for 35 years but i think that there are so many elements that have been so consistently delivering whether it be the music again the aesthetic the gameplay what have you that it's been delivering for so long and we've gotten so many different sort of permutations of it over the years that of course we've been talking for almost two hours and barely scratched the surface we're talking about whole franchise here you know, last week it was you know, I think because Castlevania has you know a more consistent quality you know throughout its entire series we're already able to 
to talk for at length you know, about it. It's a serious work. But last week we were talking about Sidon Hill too, and you could very much argue that uh, that was the peak. You know, that, that that's the game you could talk about the most. You know, it's like, come on, who, who's doing multi-hour talks about Sidon Hill three? You know, which is. Or, or even the original Silent Hill, you know, the, those are the closest games to that, you know. And it goes back to what I said earlier. It's like, while this isn't, you know, the most complex series of, of the three, it consistently remains interesting to talk about because it's so simple. Yeah. Well, and it, I, to, to further that point, I do. I, uh, if it was Luis, I'm really sorry. I can't remember, but there was we did have uh, an article on Silent Hill 2 on the site uh, a mm. few months ago, where we talked about how, in order for the Silent Hill series to progress, we have to let go of Silent Hill mm. 2 because, as you said, everyone talks about Silent Hill 2. No one talks about Silent Hill, Silent Hill 3, Silent Hill 4 after that you know who knows but again when you said it was just so simple that's I think one of the keys that is of uh, the series longevity is just that it's so simple but then you get little variations and it just evolves from there and it still retains that you want to call it simplicity yes but again, like that simplicity, I think it, while not inaccurate in terms of from afar, right? Again, I had, I'll, I'll admit, uh, it was, this was one of those episodes where I was like having, uh, semi anxiety. Like, am I going to be able to talk about Castlevania for at least an hour? And it's like, again, we're almost at two hours where Neil and I have this same back and forth, but it's not just that we have lots to say. It's that it is indicative of how something from so far away from the outside can look so simple. Like it's a guy with a whip whipping candles and then demons and skeletons and whatnot. And yet there is a lot to it. And yeah, we're talking about the franchise as a whole, not one particular title, but I would venture to bet that we could talk about any entry in the series for at least two hours, despite what some might think that the series is indicative of just from the outset or from the outside rather. Yes. Um, it is definitely a game that, and a series that has qualities that uh, have been evolving over the course of the years in a way that still might be different from them what came before it. And yet it feels very much in line with the sort of direction or the, um, the precedent set by the previous game. Um, but I guess before we wrap up, uh, Mike, were there any other sort of, I guess that's a very broad question in terms of talking about a franchise <laughs> of 35, uh, 35 years. But I guess yeah. in terms of just like elements of Castlevania, sort of like the music, which we very uh, foolishly saved for the last 10 minutes of an almost two hour episode. Uh, that the you, best for last. Yeah, the best for last. Exactly. But uh, <laughs> any elements of that that I think maybe stand out to you uh, that definitely deserve recognition? I don't think I mean I think we pretty much covered it and by the way Kyle I'm sorry you were the one who wrote that article of what sounds good I'm just I'm, I'm sorry dude please don't hate me <laughs> but if, but I mean, if, if if fairness Luis Coelho has written some great articles oh yeah oh yeah well, well we all, we we have great people doing it doing stuff here so but yeah. no it's 
I think we no, we pretty much nailed it in terms of just the fact that you know the gameplay is as simple as it is has just had longevity. It's one of those games that's uh, you know it's it's I I, I I I almost said easy to pick up. In some cases, it is, but yeah. uh, but for the most part, it's one that the you learn to once you learn the mechanics you you know it does become you do become experts yes. on it uh just oh there's so much there's so much about I mean, like again the atmosphere just the you know i don't know i mean there's really <laughs> i don't know if we can cover if i can <laughs> say anything more about the series other than just that you know it really does there are as i said at the top there are very good and we've listed them off legitimate reasons why several games in the several entries in the series are considered some of the best of all time it's definitely one of those franchises i'll say somebody that just experienced a lot of the early games for the first time it's definitely a franchise that it definitely has its learning curve, but at the same time, don't view it as a lot of games of that era where within 15 minutes, you're frustrated, you're going to bounce right off of it because of the difficulty, right? I think that, it, and it's something that you pointed out, Mike, in that it is a game that scales in a way that the, the scale might be a little more than uh, some maybe more uh, modern gamers are used to or people that have only played maybe like a majority of AAA titles are used to, and yet it's not so inaccessible as maybe some of the other games from that same era that are very uh, maybe more so difficult to kind of jump into or experience no it's exa- it's not it's not Ninja Gaiden it's not going <laughs> to kick your ass right from the very first level it's not Batman which again both games are amazing but they do have high difficulty curves learning curves for that matter to master And but once you do I mean, it's again, it's a testament to the games and the developers themselves to be able to create something that's while difficult doesn't mess, doesn't mean it's bad. Right. I think that yes. it's it, people kind of people kind of rag on difficulty these days mm. as being like, masking it as sort of an accessibility issue, and in some cases, yeah. it, in some cases it can be, mm. but also the fact that you again with Castlevania you it the game has is not a pick up and play it's not a generic thing you have to learn its mechanics no. to fully enjoy it to fully enjoy it and once you do you know it's so it becomes so much better then you move on to move on to pattern memorization you learn and then you once you mastered that then you start to see other things it's just you again the difficulty is there for a reason and it's not unfa- it's not unfair i know that people i mentioned before nes hard and yeah. again that's more that's more in line with again ninja gaiden or i keep on mentioning ninja gaiden i like ninja gaiden don't it's worry a good, it, but, it's a good game but you're pretty yeah. fair in uh, in labeling it as the one of the de facto sort of like hardcore quote unquote yeah. get good games of its era Oh yeah, 
Escape the course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and again, you know, once you become, once you ace it, you become like the speedrunners who are able to yeah. just, you know, breeze through it and you wonder, what the hell are these guys doing? And it's just, <laughs> it's just, no, it's, and, you know, it's kind of weird because you think back and it's just like, when you were a kid, you had all this time and you spent it playing these games. You were able to do that. Now, yes. Nowadays, you know, when nowadays when you're an adult or, you know, you're in college or whatever, you have responsibilities and you don't have that sort of time. I mean, you know, you do have the time, but you want to use it wisely. Yeah. You don't yeah, exactly. You don't have that opportunity. It's sort of it's. And again, you know, games have sort of scaled themselves to make themselves more accessible in that regard yeah absolutely but it's not even a matter of just like the time but like the frequency with which we have these releases right i mean oh yes exactly yes we do a weekly podcast but it's just like outside of the podcast having something to talk about them might be timely because of a release or because of the uh the anniversary or something that comes up but just in terms of like our other writing right covering games covering movies i mean the frequency with which something that is viewed as maybe not necessarily AAA, but like a, a uh, let's say like a, a hot title that comes out. It feels like every two days something yeah. new comes out that requires, uh, that gets the same level of criticism or discourse perhaps that maybe back yes. in the day necessarily. I wasn't around during the NAS days in the 80s, but it was definitely <laughs> the thing where I would imagine it was something where you had a Ninja Gaiden, you had a Mario, you had a Castlevania – and that was all anybody talked about maybe for a couple of months, maybe perhaps, or that was like yeah. the top of the list for the year type of thing. I don't want to speculate too much, but uh, it definitely seems like it's a change. But at the same time, for somebody like myself that just got to experience a bunch of those games, they're definitely more accessible, uh, not only from being available, but just in terms of being able to enjoy to a certain degree, right? You're going to, again, it's a lot of the things that we've kind of covered, but uh as always, it's a uh, Neil. It's a pleasure having you to talk about uh, horror games. And Mike, it was especially great. Maybe I mislabeled <laughs> you as a super fan, but your enthusiasm for uh, Castlevania was definitely appreciated on this episode. And we uh, look forward Absolutely. to having you on, hopefully in the future, to chat uh, horror oh, for I, uh, Safe Room. I look forward to it. This has been a this. It's been a while since I've been on a podcast, actually. So this was kind of a, a nice sort of reintroduction to it. And I really enjoyed it. Well, we appreciate your time and your enthusiasm. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. 
Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 